You're listening to teaching from Castle Hills Christian Church in San Antonio, Texas. More information about Castle Hills Christian Church is available at chccsa.com. Something special happens when people eat together. Sitting across the table from someone else and breaking bread with them powerfully moves the relationship forward. Throughout history, people have gathered around the table to share food and to connect with one another. Some meals carry deeper significance, providing an opportunity to connect with cultural and religious roots and honor family history and traditions. It is no accident that the early followers of Jesus would eat together and share meals in public gatherings and in each other's homes. For almost 2,000 years, followers of Jesus have set aside time to reenact the sacrifice of Jesus and celebrate God's love by taking the Lord's Supper together. Simple elements, bread and cup. Despite what we often think, eating is a spiritual practice. Welcome to the table. When I was a kid, I had a friend named Sean. Now, I grew up going to church all the time. Anytime there was a worship service or a Bible study or a prayer meeting or a service day, we were there. But Sean, not so much. And if you grew up around church, you know there's a lot of unspoken rules around church, especially for kids. But if you break these rules, they become spoken rules, right? Like I was constantly having to be reminded of these unspoken rules. But I knew Sean didn't even know the rules because he didn't grow up in that kind of environment, didn't grow up going to church a lot. So I decided to invite him to church, but I knew if I was going to do that, I had to tell him about all these unspoken rules. So we get to the service, and we're, we're sitting there, and it comes to prayer time, and I realized that Sean probably doesn't know. He probably wasn't taught as a kid the way I was taught to pray. You know, you close your eyes and bow your head, and you're quiet, and you fold your hands, and you sit still. So you're not distracting all the people around you. And that's how I was taught as a kid. That was the, the unspoken rule when you're in the worship services. Like, this is how you pray. So they're in the middle of the prayer time. I look over, and sure enough, Sean has his eyes open. So I'm like, Sean, Sean, you got to close your eyes, man. Now, as a kid, I didn't get the irony of the fact that the only way I knew Sean had his eyes open was by having my eyes open. At this moment, all the adults around just are looking at me because here I am making a much bigger distraction than Sean ever would. Later on in the service, we get to the time where we take communion or the Lord's Supper, and there's a lot of unspoken rules. You know, I'm a kid, so I'm not supposed to be playing with this. And if someone sticks a tray in your hand, you just kind of pass it. And, you know, I, I don't put your hand in the bread. This isn't snack time. And so here I am trying to give Sean all the quick unspoken rules about what it looks like to take communion or the Lord's Supper or to be around that when it's happening in your church. And to me, in this environment, the unspoken rule was that the Lord's Supper was a super serious time and you didn't want to do anything to take away from the seriousness of the Lord's Supper, that that in and of itself was breaking the rules. For the last couple of weeks, we've been talking 
about the Lord's Supper in a series called Table Talk. And one of the things we've been doing is actually challenging some of the assumptions, some of the unspoken rules that we have believed and internalized about the Lord's Supper, and seeing what the Bible actually says about it, and what communion is, where it comes from, why we do it, and how we do it as a church family. Today we're going to be talking about the ambiance of the Lord's Supper. And when I say ambiance, what I mean is like the atmosphere, the environment that's created. Like if you go into a fancy restaurant, it has a different ambiance than like a Whataburger would have. You might think of this as like the vibes of communion. We're talking about what it feels like and what the experience should, should be to us in the environment around the Lord's Supper. The longest discussion of the Lord's Supper in the whole Bible comes from 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 17 through 34. And here, the Apostle Paul is writing to the church in Corinth, and he gives them some instructions about when they take the Lord's Supper. And this, this letter to the Corinthian church was sort of a back-and-forth correspondence between the Apostle Paul, who would help start the church, and the people who were there. And he's addressing a lot of specific issues that they're facing and, and trying to respond to some questions they have, but he's also trying to identify some areas that he knows that they're not living up to their full potential. And that's where we kind of come to in 1 Corinthians chapter 11 when he talks about the Lord's Supper. Check out how he talks about it. I'm just going to give you some highlights. Verse 22, this is what Paul says. Don't you have your own homes for eating and drinking? In verse 26, he says, For every time you eat this bread and drink this cup, you are announcing the Lord's death until he comes. Verse 27 says, So anyone who eats this bread and drinks this cup of the Lord unworthily is guilty of sinning against the body and blood of the Lord. Verse 29, this kind of wraps this up. It says, For if you eat the bread or drink the cup without honoring the body of Christ, you are eating and drinking God's judgment upon yourself. Well, that's some pretty heavy stuff. In fact, if you're just coming to this text for the first time, you might go, man, 1 Corinthians chapter 11 is kind of a downer. And this Lord's Supper, this communion is kind of a, whoa, it's a heavy, serious experience. So it's not surprising that for many of us, the unspoken rule we've had around taking communion is that it's a, a somber or a solemn or sometimes even a sad occasion. But there's weird sort of tension because when Jesus ate with people in the Gospels, it was very rarely sad. In fact, it was usually quite the opposite. In Luke chapter 7, Jesus has to address the reputation he has among the religious crowd about the way he eats. And he kind of uh, compares and contrasts himself to John the Baptist because there was criticism about John the Baptist too, but he ate a little differently than Jesus did. This is what Jesus says in Luke chapter 7, verses 33 to 34. John the Baptist didn't spend his time eating bread or drinking wine, and you say he's possessed by a demon. The Son of Man, here Jesus is talking about himself, the Son of Man, on the other hand, feasts and drinks, and you say he's a glutton and a drunkard and the friend of tax collectors and other sinners. See, Jesus had a reputation. He was so social, so involved in the community. He would eat at people's homes, and he would go to dinner parties, and he was constantly with people, so much so that he had a reputation of being a glutton and a drunkard. And I know that's not usually how we think about Jesus, but that's the reputation he had in his community. Jesus was criticized for partying a little too much, and he was criticized for hanging out with the wrong people, tax collectors and sinners. 
This is the kind of life that other religious leaders didn't carry on. Jesus here has a reputation for being lively and being involved and being social and being engaged in community and being at dinner parties and hanging out with the wrong crowd. And you may be saying to yourself, well, yeah, Jesus did that. But when we take the Lord's Supper, we're not trying to be like Jesus. We're trying to remember Jesus. And specifically, we're trying to remember Jesus's death. That's how they were supposed to act when Jesus was around. But when we take the Lord's Supper, we're, we're focusing on something different. It's essentially a funeral meal. But one of the things I think is really important for us to, to realize at this moment, when we talk about the Lord's Supper, when we talk about communion and what it actually means, is that we as followers of Jesus who believe in the resurrection don't actually believe that Jesus is dead. And we don't actually believe that Jesus is really distant, that he's somewhere else, that we should behave one way when he was here on earth, but a different way now that he's gone. Instead, we believe that he's right here, right now, present with us, that he conquered death and that he didn't stay in the grave. But we still have to figure out how to make sense of Jesus' death. And we have to make sense of this meal that memorializes or announces his death. The theologian N.T. Wright says, When Jesus wanted to explain to his followers the meaning of his death, he didn't give them a theory. He gave them a meal. He instituted what we call the, the Lord's Supper or communion. And he did this at what we sometimes call the Last Supper, where he gathers with his closest friends and followers to celebrate the Passover festival. And at this Passover meal, he gives it new meaning and new significance and institutes a new covenant that will be memorializing his death that was right around the corner. And this meal, it builds on the history of the Israelite people in the Passover festival. It builds on this story from the book of Exodus where the people were living as slaves and God comes in with his mighty hand and releases them miraculously from slavery in Egypt. And each year they were supposed to celebrate the liberation, the freedom that God had given them from the oppression of the Egyptians. And it's at this meal that memorializes this liberation that Jesus goes, hey, it's not just about the liberation from bondage in Egypt. It's also about the way I'm going to allow you to live in relationship differently with God the Father going forward. And this meal doesn't just celebrate Jesus' death, but it also celebrates his resurrection from the dead. It celebrates his offering us love and grace and mercy. And it celebrates the fact that we have a new family or a new community, a new people to belong to. But the question is, if this is a, a festival meal, if it's a celebratory meal, why is it that 1 Corinthians chapter 11, the longest discussion about the Lord's Supper in the Bible, is so serious? Well, let's look at 1 Corinthians chapter 11, starting in verse 17. And here, this is where Paul's giving these instructions to the Corinthian church, and he knows that they're not quite where they need to be when it comes to the way they take the Lord's Supper. Starting in verse 17, he says, But in the following instructions, I cannot praise you, for it sounds as if more harm than good is done when you meet together. First, I hear there are divisions among you when you meet as a church, and to some extent, I believe it. But of course, there must be divisions among you so that you who have God's approval will be recognized. When you meet together, you're not really interested in the Lord's Supper. For some of you are hurried to eat your own meal without sharing with others. As a result, some go hungry while others get drunk. What? Don't you have homes 
for eating and drinking? Or do you really want to disgrace God's church and shame the poor? What am I supposed to say? Do you want me to praise you? Well, I certainly will not praise you for this. Well, why is it that 1 Corinthians chapter 11 is so serious? Well, the church in Corinth had some serious problems. There were divisions among them. And these weren't like surface divisions. These were angry, violent, outburst divisions. And, and there was greed in the church. And there was selfishness in the church. People were only looking out for themselves, only worried about themselves. And so Paul had to address this problem because it was impacting not just the way they lived and not just the way they worshiped, but even the way they took the Lord's Supper. He says that some of them would go hungry while others would get drunk. In other words, they were only concerned about consuming and not about being part of a community and not about celebrating Jesus. They were completely missing the point of the Lord's Supper. In fact, Paul says that the way they were treating the Lord's Supper is so bad that it would be better if they had skipped it altogether. Paul's not saying it's not important. In fact, he's saying it's so important that when you're doing it this wrong, when you're doing it in this way, when you're doing it with these divisions and this greed and this selfishness in your heart, you're actually causing more harm than good. And my guess is that if they acted this way at church gatherings, they were probably living their everyday-to-day -day lives worse. I mean, for a lot of us, it's easy for us to come together for a worship service or a Bible study or a life group or for prayer with our friends and kind of keep it together and treat each other halfway decent for a little while. But if you can't even keep it together for that, the way you're treating people day to day is probably much worse. And they're missing what they're supposed to be doing. Paul says to them, what you're actually supposed to be doing when you take the Lord's Supper, you're supposed to be announcing or proclaiming the Lord's death. It's not about you, it's about Jesus. And it's not just about Jesus in like the generic sense, like, oh, how awesome is Jesus? It's about his death. Jesus's death is the ultimate act of sacrifice. The person who had no reason to, no compulsion to, choosing to show love and generosity and mercy towards us. And in that moment, they were taking something that was about sacrifice and turning it into selfishness. So they had missed the point of the Lord's Supper. So the Lord's Supper is about Jesus' death, but we need to remember that Jesus' death is not sad. In fact, it's joyful. To another church, Paul wrote this, 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 13, do not grieve as the rest who have no hope. And there he's talking about the way we, we think and reflect on uh, our brothers and sisters, our church family who have passed away, and how we shouldn't be overcome by grief in the same way the world tends to be in the face of death, because we have hope. But we don't even believe that Jesus is still in the grave. We believe that he's already conquered death. That the resurrection isn't a future experience for him, but it's something he's already undergone. So when we think about Jesus' death, it's not a sad occasion. It's a joyful occasion because we have hope in the resurrection. Now, the Lord's Supper is serious. It is a serious celebration. It's building on the ideas of the festival meal. It's building on the idea of hope and love and sacrifice of Jesus. And it's building on the idea of this community. Mike Graves says about it this, when the earliest church ate this meal, the mood could best be described as festive joy. When they gathered together, they were supposed to be 
proclaiming the joy and the hope that we have because of Jesus' death. Later in the letter to the Corinthians, 1 Corinthians chapter 15, this is what Paul writes. Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin and the power of sin is law. But thanks be to God who gives us victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. See, when we celebrate the Lord's Supper, we're not celebrating a defeated king. We're celebrating the defeater of death, the victor over sin. We're celebrating the fact that sin and death no longer have power and mastery over us. The Lord's Supper is a celebration of hope. 